0: The 19th century was on the cutting edge of new technology and a new religious movement, and they intersected in some interesting and surprising ways. Find out how spirit photography became a thing, and hear how William Mumler captured the ghost of Abraham Lincoln in this week's episode of Footnoting History. Hello, Footnoting History friends, it's Kristen. This week's episode is dedicated to my best pal, and Footnoting History's unofficial mascot, Admiral Nelson. Up until very recently, Admiral Nelson worked on every single Footnoting History episode with me, including this one. The Admiral was 14 and a half and made French bulldog sounds, so he never actually recorded with me. And so in that respect, this episode is just like all my others but I miss him. There is a picture of the Admiral on the Patreon newsletter, and he's also on the footnotinghistory.com page for this episode and the social media posts. If you'd like to send him some love, I know he'd appreciate that. Attention and meeting new people were his two favorite things and history. He was named after Napoleon's nemesis, after all. So, I'm back with some history from the great beyond for you or about the great beyond something like that you pick this topic is simultaneously unbelievable and not I first came across William Mumler and his profession of spirit photography about a year ago and I have not been able to stop thinking about him and the world that made Mummler possible since. It's one where science and the occult and consumerism collide, where you're confronted with the possibilities of the human mind and the universe. And there's just so much going on here. It warms my little historian heart. William Mummler was born in Boston in 1832, just a few years before Louis-Jacques Mondet Daguerre took the first known photograph with people in it. Daguerre's 1838 photograph was taken on a busy street in Paris. However, because the technology needed a long exposure time to actually capture an image, it couldn't capture moving people, which, of course, was a lot of what was happening on that street. Daguerre got the scenery, but in terms of people, he only got a guy having his shoe shined by a boot black because they were the only ones who kept still long enough for their images to be captured by this earliest form of camera technology. The tech was called a daguerreotype after the inventor and the guy who invented Morse code, Samuel Finley Brees Morse, brought it to America and improved upon the technology enough to lessen the exposure time needed and to start taking actual portraits of people in 1840. Not long after this, in 1848, two sisters, 11-year-old Kate and 14-year-old Margaret Fox from the Rochester, New York area, managed to convince a lot of people that they were able to communicate with spirits from the beyond and started giving seance performances and The spiritualism movement was born in the United States. And guys, the Fox sisters are worthy of their own episode. It's an awesome story that starts with a spirit later identified by the sisters as Mr. Splitfoot, a man who allegedly had been murdered in their house and buried in the basement, who again, allegedly, depending on your beliefs, communicated with the girls via a system of taps. And that show went on the road, and things just went from there. People from universities questioned them. Hundreds of people showed up to see them do their thing. James Fenimore Cooper, the guy who wrote The Leather Stocking Tales and The Last of the Mohicans, went to see them. It was a whole thing. The sisters later recanted and then recanted the recantation. It's kind of awesome. The Victorians were way less boring than we usually give them credit for. The Victorian era, which is named for the reign of Queen Victorian England from 1837 to 1901, but is often applied to countries other than England, like the United States, was a time where a lot of people were really excited about new theories that seemed to upend the old order. And they were really intrigued by what they felt was a real possibility of contacting departed spirits and speaking to them from the other side. Victorian culture was really into seances and the supernatural. Queen Victoria herself actually participated in seances. So did Mark Twain and Frederick Douglass. So did a lot of people. All the cool kids were doing it. And so this was the environment in which spiritualism was born. Spiritualism is considered a social religious movement. There isn't really an emphasis on doctrines and rules. Historians have described it more of a belief in the continuity of a person's consciousness or soul after death, and that you can communicate with these souls on this other plane, and that doing so can give you some insight into your current situation, morality, and ethics, and the nature of God. In 1854, the New England Spiritualist Association said that, quote, Our creed is simple. Spirits do communicate with man. That is the creed. But there's not a lot of hierarchy or rules. The movement offered, actually still offers, a lot of positive personal things for its followers. There were different branches and a few people claimed to be the founders or the leaders, but It was a pretty diffuse movement, and it was huge. In the late 1800s, somewhere between 4 and 11 million people in the United States alone identified as spiritualists. And I know that's a huge range, but the unstructured nature of the movement and the impediments to actually taking a firm count at the time makes it hard to actually quantify. But either way, it was a lot of people. It was people who maybe might surprise you. Marie and Pierre Curie were spiritualists, though some historians believe that Pierre was more into the sand side of things than Marie. Alfred Russell Wallace, an evolutionary biologist who wrote about natural selection in 1858, was a spiritualist too. There were people who definitely believed in the scientific method and who were excited about all the new technological inventions of the 19th century. And they thought, well, hey, maybe we can prove the existence of the spiritual realm too. Maybe these things are connected. Spiritualism and science and technology all maybe sound unrelated, but in this context, they're definitely not unrelated. Peter Manso illustrates this connection Really beautifully in his book, The Apparitionists, which is linked in the further reading for this episode. And he does it with the tragic story of Samuel Morse, who I mentioned a little earlier. Morse was originally a painter and he was really good at it. He was hired to do the portrait of the Marquis de Lafayette in 1825. Lafayette was a French major general who fought with George Washington during the American Revolution and he was in Washington, D.C. for the 50th anniversary. That painting was never actually finished, though. While Morse was in D.C., his wife Lucretia died. They had been young sweethearts, and Morse adored her and wrote to her often when he was away. And he realized that when he wrote to Lucretia last, she was already dead, but to him at that moment, she was still alive and he felt like he was still talking to her. Morse became convinced that had he known Lucretia had died when it actually happened, that would have helped him in his grief. He gave up painting and he became obsessed with this idea of transmitting communications instantly across great distances. This is part of a larger trend that historians see in the mid to late 19th century. Lucretia's tragic death at a young age was unfortunately not uncommon. And also, unfortunately, people far younger than Lucretia died all the time. Somewhere between 20 to 40% of kids were still dying before the age of five, and infant mortality remained incredibly high in the 1800s. This wasn't new, but what was new was a growing middle class and a more tolerant society that was willing to accept and explore stuff like spiritualism. A lot of affluent and progressive people were desperate to commemorate and communicate with family they had lost. There were a lot of memento mori things in the Victorian era. People saved locks of hair from their departed relatives and kept them in lockets and When there were photography studios, people sat for portraits with their dead relatives before they were buried. If you ever see an old photograph of someone posing with their sleeping baby or just a sleeping baby, that baby's not sleeping. This was a whole industry in the 19th century. The historian Lewis Kaplan calls it the bereavement business. The other thing that was happening was war and death on a massive scale. In Europe, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire, this was the Crimean War in the 1850s, where about 450,000 people died. In the United States, this was the Civil War in the 1860s, where about three quarters of a million people died. People hadn't seen numbers like this before, and thanks to Morse's technology, photographs, and the electric telegraph, people got updates like never before. People started to wonder if or how these new technologies could bridge worlds. Telegraphs seemed to bring voices from great distances, but like just how far? When people talked about the Fox sisters, they described their spirit communication system as a spiritual telegraph. Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison experimented with what were called uncanny radios and spirit telephones. In 1901, Nikola Tesla thought he heard some scary stuff over a crystal radio he had that ran on electromagnetic waves. He wrote about it in his diary, and in 1918, he wrote again about strange stuff he was hearing over the radio, which turned out to actually be low-frequency radio signals, which I guess sound like voices not speaking in any intelligible language. His nemesis, Thomas Edison, wasn't about to be outdone, and he worked on building a phone that could be used to contact the spirit world. And if you're rolling your eyes, know this. Edison's theory has been related to Einstein's theory of quantum entanglement, which basically says that if mass can be converted to energy, why can't a physical person be converted to energy after they die? And if entangled particles can keep interacting at great distances, why can't a spirit get in touch with the physical world? I assume you get a notice that regular data rates apply, but hey maybe it's possible. In the 1860s, William Mumler was smack in the middle of all of this. His first profession was as an engraver, and he did pretty well at it. Engraving was a craft that used solvents and chemicals and close patient work. And on the weekends in his spare time, Mumler played around with photography. Photography in the 1860s was a wet plate collodial process that involved harsh chemicals, glass plates, and plenty of time in the dark room. So some of the skills overlapped, but Mumler was just a hobbyist in the early days. His other side job was selling digestive remedies through advertisements he took out in the newspapers. Apparently, breathing in all those fumes and silver shards during his day job did him no favors. But the upshot was that he did well enough to start his own engraving business, which happened to be right next door to the photography studio where one Hannah Stewart Green took pictures of the bereaved with their deceased loved ones. And that wasn't all she did. Hannah also braided the hair that people cut from the deceased and made it into necklaces and rings and other things to use as keepsakes. And she also worked as a medium and clairvoyant. A one-stop shop for all your dead relative needs, except I guess for the funeral and burial, she didn't do that. Hannah was by all counts a very charismatic and attractive person. Mumler was smitten, and he spent a lot of time with Hannah in her studio. And eventually, they got married. There's what is probably a photograph of Hannah in Manso's book next to an unidentified spirit image, because yeah. That was the other service offered at Hannah's studio. It was actually Mumler who captured the first spirit image in 1862. It's him, in all his bushy, black-bearded glory, standing with his arm on the back of a chair. And in that chair sits the wispy image of a young woman in a white dress. He's perfectly clear and solid, as is the furniture. At first, Mumler said he thought he made a mistake when developing the plate. He messed up the glass or he reused an old plate that wasn't fully cleaned. He wasn't really a professional full-time photographer and even full-time photographers messed stuff up. But other people weren't so quick to dismiss his discovery. Hannah Mumler was definitely one. Dr. H.F. Gardner a spiritualist who was a strong proponent of the Fox sisters was another. He had Mumler write up a little description on the back of the photograph, which he then took on the road. Gardner published it in the Herald of Progress, a New York publication, and from there the story and the business took off. And yeah, I know what you're probably thinking. Weren't people like suspicious of this guy who could photograph ghosts. And yeah, they definitely were, or at least some of them were. And a lot of these skeptics included other photographers. Even Dr. Gardner wanted to make sure these things were legit. The spiritualists could be skeptical too. And they often put things to a scientific test in large part because they really wanted to prove their positions. Gardner took a photograph that Mumler took of him, meaning Dr. Gardner, with not one but four spirits to James Wallace Black, who was a famous photographer in Boston. Black took a look and couldn't see anything in the photograph that smacked of tampering. But he didn't just stop there. He sent his assistant to Hannah and William's studio to sit for a photograph, and undercover operation, if you will. The assistant whose photograph developed with an image of his dead father next to him, couldn't see Mumler doing anything fishy, which is what he reported back to his boss, James Black. The assistant also came right out and asked Mumler if his boss could come sit for a photograph. He said Black would give him $50 if Mumler could capture a spirit during his sitting. And Mumler was like, yeah, let's do it. And Mumler did it. James Black came and inspected the camera and the plate. He made sure Mumler actually used the inspected plate, and he watched him develop the plate in the darkroom. Mumler offered to let Black develop the plate himself, but Black declined. He said he was, quote, too smart for Mumler to do anything to it while he watched. Mumler agreed, and maybe Black's arrogance explains what happened next, or maybe it doesn't. But when Mumler developed the image, there was the image of a spirit, a man leaning on James Black's shoulder who definitely had not been physically in the room with them. Black went away amazed. Mumler never actually charged Black the 50 bucks, but he more than made up for that with the publicity and the customers that followed. Eventually, you didn't even have to go to Mumler's studio to sit for a picture. He started a mail order service, You could just send a description of the spirit you wanted to see and $7.50 and you too could see ghosts. Hot dog. Despite this booming clientele and the fact that no one could seem to explain quite how he was doing it, there were still a lot of people who were not convinced Mumler wasn't a fraud. Mumler actually wrote a book about it, published in 1875, where he talks about his experiences and how he was plagued by investigators though he did not quote wish to prevent them from using every means consistent with the necessary conditions to prevent deception but that he did quote object to this idea of first calling a man a deceiver and then trying to prove his honesty and you know on the one hand i hear what he's saying but also dude ghost photographs it's a hard sell mumler eventually moved from boston to new york in 1868 where he hoped that maybe The investigators would back off. They did not. In 1869, Mumler was accused of fraud and larceny, basically stealing from people by lying to them. And the whole thing was covered extensively in the press. Mumler's lawyer asked how it could be fraud if Mumler believed he could really produce these spirit images and that it's not fraud just because the prosecution couldn't figure out how these images were being produced. They just didn't understand was the argument and they were quick to tear down anything they didn't understand. Quote, they don't believe that science can improve, Mumler's lawyer said. Men like these would have hanged Galileo had he lived in their day. And if you believe the Bible, you also have to believe that spirits can appear because that happens in the Bible, just FYI. So dear Victorians who probably don't wanna say you don't believe in the Bible, why can't all this really happen? Why can't all these new scientific and technological developments do this? Maybe we don't understand how, but that doesn't mean it's not true. That was the gist. There were tons of witnesses both for and against Mumler. One particularly famous witness was P.T. Barnum. Yes, the circus guy. And no, he was not pro-Mumler. Every time I thought this story couldn't get better, it did. Barnum was convinced Mumler was a fraud. He had been for a while. Back when Mumler was still living in Boston, Barnum was one of those mail order spirit photography customers. P.T. Barnum ran the American Museum in New York, which was full of stuff you think it was. Lots of incredible displays like the Fiji mermaid. Google it. It's horrific. You're welcome for the nightmares. Barnum apparently did not like the competition that Mumler presented. On the stand, he testified that he wrote to Mumler, quote, saying that I wish to expose all the humbugs of the world. Humbugs meaning frauds. And, quote, he, meaning Mumler, sent me a lot of photographs and I paid him about $10 a piece. Barnum then displayed these spirit photographs in his museum and made money off of them. He also commissioned a known-to-be-fake, intentionally faked, spirit photograph, Done by a respected above-board photographer named Abraham Bogardus. Bogardus was able to create an image of Barnum with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln that looked pretty much like Mumler's spirit photographs. Barnum said he watched Bogardus do it, take the photograph, develop it, and he couldn't detect the fraud. He couldn't tell how Bogardus was doing what he hired him to do. He and apparently people in the courtroom laughed about this Lincoln ghost image. Barnum ended up not being such a great witness for the prosecution, though. You're probably not surprised. But the prosecution could never actually prove how Mumler produced those spirit photographs. Mumler himself was pretty convincing, saying that he honestly believed in the services he provided, and there were a ton of witnesses who spoke on his behalf. The New York Daily Tribune reported that there were a lot of, quote, distinguished believers and propagators of the doctrines of spiritualism present in the courtroom. The Tribune also made sure to point out that the court audience also consisted of a, quote, sprinkling of middle-aged ladies, which was probably a dig at the feminine slant or perceived slant of the main spirit photography customer base. Mumler was exonerated, He went back to Boston because New York had become too difficult for him. And Hannah, who, by the way, was not charged with Mumler, remained there. They did resume their spirit photography business in Boston after the legal troubles. But Hannah then turned to claiming to be a spiritual healer, and Mumler seemed to have lost interest in taking spirit photographs. He did still have his customers, though, and some of those customers were pretty famous. And the most famous was probably Mary Todd Lincoln. Mary Todd Lincoln, as we know, had a lot of tragedy in her life. In 1862, Mary and Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, died of typhoid. Neither of the Lincolns ever really got over his death, but Mary took it particularly hard, and her reaction was likely exacerbated by other mental health issues she had. She took a lot of comfort in spiritualism, as many people who like her had lost loved ones did. I mean, I get it. And of course, Willie's death wasn't the end of tragedy in Mary's life. When Mary came to Mumler's New York studio in 1872, she was a repeat customer and now a widow. Mary's suffering only grew worse after Abraham Lincoln's assassination in 1865. She was looking for the comfort of seeing that her husband was still with her, and she did not leave Mumler's studio disappointed. She left with a photograph of her sitting in a chair with her hands folded all in black with the shadowy figure of Abraham Lincoln standing behind her with his hands on her shoulders. I know, another Abraham Lincoln ghost photograph that you didn't think you'd get to in this episode. The image that Mumler produced is the image used for this episode, which you can see on our website, footnotinghistory.com, or on our YouTube channel. The image is very haunting in, I guess, a lot of ways. It's really sad, and you can't help but hope, or at least I can't help but hope, that maybe it's real. Maybe it really is possible. And that's the thing, right? The story of William Mumler is enigmatic and prompts all of these really wonderful questions like, how is he doing it? And like, did he really believe it? These are questions that I'm still sitting with. I haven't been able to find a really concrete answer for his photographic process. And while there are a lot of theories out there, some more plausible than others, they remain just that. Peter Venkman is still working on proving the existence of ghosts last I knew. There are some really good books and sources in the further reading. And aside from reading Mumler himself, which I do highly recommend, Lewis Kaplan's book on Mumler really explains the source material he relied on and where it lives in libraries and museums in the US, the UK, and Canada. It's a lot of varied material. Spiritualists, writings, letters, the press, meaning newspapers, tabloids, and photographic journals, which were often aimed at sensationalism and entertainment, and of course, selling papers. There are also court records, and of course, there's Mumler himself, who wrote about his experiences. There are a lot of reasons I can think of why Mumler might have claimed authenticity and belief. Tempting though it may be, historians have to read firsthand accounts with caution. And of course, just because mumler believed something was true that he was legit taking pictures of spirits that doesn't mean you know he actually was and then you get into a whole host of other interesting scholarly questions the psychoanalysis of belief and what kaplan calls quote the will to believe or quote the will to truth some things become so important to people that they land on a position that something is true or false with just utter absolute certainty, and a lot becomes invested in that position. Most people won't say definitively that anything is impossible, and that we shouldn't assume we know everything there is to know. There are new discoveries all the time, and that was abundantly clear in the fast-changing world of the later 19th century. In April of 1869, regarding the William Umler case. The New York Times succinctly captured the issues. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what happens in the courtroom. The believers and the skeptics won't budge. If Mumler were found guilty, it wouldn't matter to the people who believed in the photographs. They'd still believe. And if he were found innocent, the skeptics would just think they hadn't been able to prove the fraud. You can't prove a negative and you don't know all there is to know. Quote, The things in heaven and earth that are yet beyond our philosophy are many, and from the constant advances in knowledge and the scientific classifications of them, we may well believe that the unknown and knowable are vastly more than the known. Certainly, in view of the world's past history and its present progress, it is not the part of wisdom to believe in appearances or to disbelieve in what we cannot yet understand. Those are both the resources of thoughtlessness and folly. If those things are so, time will prove them. This has been Footnoting History. Thank you for spending this time with us. If you like the podcast, please make sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com for links to further reading and a calendar of upcoming podcasts. We'd love to interact with you on social media. We are on Twitter as at History Footnote and Facebook as Footnoting History. If you'd like to help keep Footnoting History open access, consider becoming a patron or supporting us through our Ko-Fi or shop links on our website. Admiral Nelson salutes you. And until next time, remember, The best stories are always in the footnotes.